This is Medieval Death Trip for Sunday, June 30th, 2019, episode 75, concerning more challenges to the throne of man. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last episode, I promised another tale of a saint's curse, and we're going to get that. Uh, Indeed, we're going to hear about a far more brutal curse than Cuthbert frightening away a bishop with some bad dreams and a tummy ache. But first, we have to navigate the dangerous shoals of island politics. This episode, we're sailing back to the Isle of Man, which we last visited in episode 44, concerning the turnover of the Kings of Man. In fact, you might consider listening to that episode before continuing with this one if you either haven't heard it or don't remember it and want to get the fullest experience of historical context and continuity. Our text today comes from The Chronicle of Man and the Sudris, a work produced by a succession of monks on the Isle at Russian Abbey starting in the mid-13th century, but looking back over the island's history from the year 1000 onward. The first major figure in this history is a Norwegian named Godred Crovin, or Crowen, who enters the story fighting alongside Harold Hardrada against the English at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066. That battle didn't go well for the Norwegians. Uh, If it had gone otherwise, England might have had a Norwegian conquest in 1066 instead of a Norman one. Godred, being on the losing side, flees the country and winds up on the Isle of Man, where a different Godred, Godred the son of Citric, is currently ruling as king. Godred the refugee apparently takes a bit of a liking to the place, and about ten years later, after the death of King Godred, Godred Crovin comes back to the island with a fleet of ships, deposes the old king's son, and takes the throne himself as the new king of man. Upon his death, another 16 years later, his two eldest sons fall into civil war, or family feud, where operating on a somewhat small scale, where those two things aren't really distinguishable. This whole affair is covered in three sentences in the Chronicle. Quote, Lagman, the oldest, seized the reins of government and reigned seven years. Harold, his brother, continued long in rebellion against him, till at length he was taken, mutilated, and deprived of his eyes. Afterwards, Lagman, repenting that he had put out his brother's eyes, voluntarily resigned the kingdom, took the cross, and went to Jerusalem, where he died. End quote. Mutilation is generally a euphemism for castration. It's interesting that we're told Lagman felt bad about blinding his brother, but the castration isn't listed with that. Uh, one wonders if that's suggestive of the nature of Harold's threat. Was it unnecessary and excessive to impair his ability to act and lead and fight by taking his eyes, but perhaps appropriate and effective to ensure that he couldn't produce potential rival offspring? Anyway, there was a third brother, Olav, but he was still a child and was living in safety at the English court at the time of his eldest brother's death and was thus in no position to take the crown. As such, there was a power vacuum left on the Isle of Man. That provides an opportunity for the North Sea superpowers of Norway, Scotland, England, and Ireland to try to throw their weight around and press their own claims. So, as we heard in episode 44, a series of incompetent and tyrannical interim rulers are sent to the island by various foreign courts, 
finally ending with the Norwegian king Magnus Barefoot coming in and claiming the island for himself. Our excerpt that episode ended with the year 1098, in which Magnus was killed in battle in Ireland, and the people of Man sent for Olav, who was finally of age, to come and be their rightful ruler, restoring the dynasty of Godred Crovan to power. Our selection for today follows directly from that point and opens with an account of Olav's reign, a period of relative peace and security. And we'll go to our text now. Uh, it uses the annal format, so it starts with a series of relatively short items relating events according to year. One of these is the coronation of King Stephen in England following the death of Henry I, in which our chronicler repeats a claim that also appears in a few English chronicles, alleging that at the coronation mass, the Pax was not celebrated. Uh, to gloss that, the Pax is when the celebrant says, peace be with you, uh, sometimes with the kiss of peace, depending on the era and local practice. Uh, the priest says this to the deacon, who is supposed to pass it down to the other attendants at the altar, and from them down to the people. In periods like the early Middle Ages, when it wasn't common for the Eucharist to be administered to the ordinary people, this viral transmission of the Pax down from the altar into the congregation provided a kind of substitute for that experience. Though the connection isn't made explicit in the chronicles I looked at, I'd presume that the detail of the Pax being forgotten at Stephen's coronation is meant to be a bad omen for telling the civil war between Stephen and Matilda that made his reign anything but peaceful. Anyway, the Chronicle runs through some yearly items uh, after this, and then we get a bit more long-form narrative as we enter the reign of Olav's successor, and that's where we'll get our saintly curse. We also have another important figure for the island's history who comes into the story from Scotland, but receives curiously little introduction. Uh, this is Summerled, the ruler of Argyll, who presses his own claim on the kingdom with a lasting impact, uh, and it's one of his men who runs afoul of the patron saint of the isle. So, here are the years 1102 to 1156 from the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris, as translated by Alexander Goss. In the year 1102, Olav, son of Godred Crovan, began to reign over all the isles, and he reigned forty years. He was a man of peace and was in such close alliance with all the kings of Ireland and Scotland that no one ventured to disturb the kingdom of the isles during his time. He took a wife named Africa, daughter of Fergus of Galloway, by whom he had issue Godred. He also had many concubines, by whom he had issue three sons, Reginald, Lagman, and Harold, and many daughters, one of whom was married to Summerlid, Lord of Argyll. And this was the cause of the ruin of the whole kingdom of the Isles, for he had issue by her four sons, Dugald, Reginald, Angus, and Olav, of whom we shall speak more fully hereafter. In the year 1112, the Abbey of St. Mary of Savigny was founded. In the year 1126, Alexander, King of Scotland, died and was succeeded by his brother David. In the same year, the Abbey of St. Mary of Furness was founded. 
In the year 1133, the Abbey of St. Mary of Revaux was founded. In the same year, there was an eclipse of the sun on Wednesday the 2nd of August, so that for some time day was converted into night. In the year 1134, the Abbey of St. Mary of Calder was founded. In the same year, King Olav gave to Ivo, abbot of Furness, a piece of his land in man to establish a monastery at a place called Russian, and he gave to the churches of the Isles lands and privileges. He was devout and zealous in promoting the divine service, and acceptable to God and man, except inasmuch as he indulged too much in the domestic vice of kings. In the year 1135, Henry, King of England, died and was succeeded by his nephew, Stephen, Count of Bologna, on the day of whose coronation the Pax was not communicated at Mass to the people through forgetfulness. In the year 1139, the Abbey of St. Mary of Melrose was founded. In the same year was fought the Battle of the Standard between the English and the Scots, in which the Scots were defeated and put to flight. In the year 1140, the Bishop St. Malachi, Legate of Ireland, died at Clairvaux and was buried in the chapel of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which he well loved. In the year 1141, the Abbey of St. Mary of Holm, Coltrum, was founded. In the year 1142, Godred, son of Olav, crossed over the sea to the king of Norway, whose name was Hingia, and did homage to him. He was well received and remained some time. In the same year, three sons of Harold, the brother of Olav, who had been brought up in Dublin, assembling a large body of men, and among them all the refugees from the dominions of Godred, came to man and demanded from the king one half of the whole kingdom of the Isles for themselves. The king, having heard their application and being desirous to pacify them, answered that he would take advice on the subject. When the day and place for holding a meeting had been agreed upon, these most wicked men spent the interval in planning the death of the king. On the appointed day, both parties met at the port called Ramsey and sat down in order, the king and his followers on one side and they with theirs on the other. Reginald, the second brother, who was to give the fatal blow, stood apart, speaking to one of the chiefs of the country. On being summoned to approach the king, turning to him as if in the act of saluting, he raised his gleaming battle-axe on high and at a blow cut off the king's head. As soon as this atrocious act was perpetrated, they divided the country between them. After the lapse of a few days, they collected their fleet and sailed to Galloway, with the purpose of conquering it. But the men of Galloway, forming a compact body, rushed upon them with great impetuosity, whereupon the invaders turned and fled in great confusion to man, and massacring some, expelled the rest of the Galloway residents in the island. In the year 1143 died Bernard of blessed memory, first abbot of Clairvaux. In the same year died David, king of Scotland, he was succeeded by his grandson Malcolm, who was raised to the throne according to royal usage. In the same year, King Olav was slain, as we have already stated, on the feast of the holy apostles Peter and Paul. In the following autumn, Godred, his son, came from Norway with five ships and put in at the Orkneys. All the chiefs of the Isles were rejoiced when they heard of his arrival, and assembling together, unanimously elected him for their king. Godred then came to man, 
seized the three sons of Harold, and, to avenge his father's murder, awarded them the death they deserved. Another story is that he put out the eyes of two of them and put the third to death. In the year 1144, Godred began his reign and reigned 39 years. Many things worthy of note might be related of him which we have omitted for the sake of brevity. In the third year of his reign, the people of Dublin sent to request him to reign over them, whereupon, assembling a great number of ships and a large army, he went to Dublin, where he was received by the citizens with great satisfaction and demonstrations of joy. A few days later, they deliberated and unanimously appointed him king. When Murrow, king of Ireland, heard of this, he collected an immense body of Irishmen and hastened to Dublin to drive out Godred and bring the city under subjection to himself. Arriving near the town called Cortsellis, he halted and pitched his camp. On the following day, he selected 3,000 horsemen, over whom he placed his uterine brother Osivlin, and sent him with the above-mentioned cavalry to the city to enter into parley with the inhabitants and to try their courage. On the approach of this detachment to the city, Godred and his followers, with all the citizens of Dublin, issued forth with great clamor, rushed impetuously upon the enemy, and assailed them with such a shower of arrows that they were at once compelled to fly. Osivlin, the king's brother, boldly continuing the struggle, was surrounded and slain with many others. The rest owed their safety to their chargers, and, returning to their lord, related in detail what had happened. When the king heard of the death of his brother, he mourned for him with inconsolable sorrow, and was so oppressed with grief that he ordered his soldiers to return to their homes. Godred, after a few days, went back to man, and dismissed the chiefs of the isles to their respective abodes. When he now found himself secure on his throne, and that no one could oppose him, he began to act tyrannically towards his chiefs, depriving some of their inheritances and others of their dignities. Of these, one named Thorfinn, son of Oder, more powerful than the rest, went to Summerlid and begged for his son Dugald that he might make him king over the Isles. Summerlid, highly gratified by the application, put Dugald under the direction of Thorfinn who received and led him through all the islands, subjecting them all to him, and taking hostages from each. One of the chiefs, however, called Paul, secretly fled to Godred and informed him of what had occurred. Godred was greatly alarmed by the intelligence, and ordered his followers to get ships in readiness and start immediately to encounter the enemy. On the other hand, Summerlid and his party assembled a fleet of 80 ships and hastened to meet Godred. In the year 1156, a naval battle was fought between Godred and Summerlid during the night of the Epiphany of Our Lord, with great slaughter on both sides. But when daylight came, they made peace, and shared between them the kingdom of the Isles, and from that day to this the kingdom has remained divided. Thus was the kingdom of the Isles ruined from the time the sons of Summerlid got possession of it.
we may here insert the account of a certain miracle of St. Mackeld, a confessor of the Lord. At the same time, while Summerlid lay in the port of man called Ramsey, it was reported to the army that the church of St. Mackeld was full of riches, for this place was a safe refuge against all dangers for all who fled to it, on account of the reverence paid to its most holy confessor, St. Mackeld. One of the principal chiefs, called Gilcolum, drew the attention of Summerlid to these treasures, and maintained that it would be no violation of the asylum of St. Mackeld to drive off, for the supply of the army, the cattle that were grazing outside the precincts of the cemetery. But Summerlid demurred, affirming that he could in no wise allow the asylum to be violated. Gilcolum continued to urge with great earnestness his proposal, begging that he and his followers might be allowed to go there and offering to take the responsibility on himself. Upon this, Summerlid reluctantly gave his consent, saying, Let the affair be between yourself and St. Mackeld. I and my army will be guiltless, nor do we wish to have any share in your spoil. Gilcolum, overjoyed, returned to his followers, and calling together his three sons and all his dependents, ordered all to prepare during the night, so as to be ready to rush suddenly at the break of day upon the church of St. Mackeld, which was distant two miles. A rumor, in the meantime, reached the church that the enemy was coming, and so alarmed by it were all that many fled from the church and concealed themselves in the recesses of the rocks and in the caverns, whilst the remaining crowd, with loud and continued cries, implored the mercy of God through the intercession of St. Mackeld. The weaker sex, with disheveled hair and mournful accents, wandered around the walls of the church, loudly crying, Where art thou now, O Mackeld? Where are thy miracles which till now thou hast worked in this place? Wilt thou now quit it on account of our sins, and abandon thy people in this their distress? If not for our sake, at least for the honor of thy name, help us now. Moved, as we believe, by these and similar supplications, and compassionating their affliction, St. Mackle delivered them from the imminent danger, and condemned their enemy to a terrible death. For when the aforesaid Gilcolum had fallen asleep in his tent, St. Mackle appeared to him, clothed in a white garment, and carrying the pastoral staff in his hand, and standing before his bed, addressed him in the following words. What is there between thee and me, Gilcolum? And what have I injured thee or thine, that thou art now about to plunder my place? To this appeal, Gilcolum replied, Who art thou? The saint answered, I am the servant of Christ, Mackled, whose church thou seekest to profane, but thou shalt not succeed. Having spoken thus, he raised on high the staff that was in his hand, and drove the point through Gilcolum's heart. The unfortunate man uttered a fearful shriek, which awoke all who were sleeping in the surrounding tents. Again the saint transfixed him, again he shrieked. A third time the saint repeated the blow, a third time the man shrieked. His sons and followers, alarmed by the screams, hastened to him, inquiring what had happened. Scarcely able to move his tongue, he answered with a groan. St. Mackled has been here, and thrice transfixing me with his staff, has killed me. But go quickly to his church and bring the staff with the priests and clerks that they may intercede for me with St. Mackle, that he may perchance forgive what I was preparing to do against him. Quickly, in execution of his orders, 
they begged the clerks to bring the staff of St. Mackled and come to their lord, who appeared to be lying in the last extremity. They narrated also all that had happened to him. The priests, clerks, and people, hearing this account, rejoiced with a great joy and sent back with the messengers some of the clerks who bore the staff. When they stood in his presence and saw him almost expiring, for he had just before lost the use of his voice, one of the clerks pronounced the following imprecation. May St. Mackled, who has begun thy punishment, cease not till he has brought thee to death, that others seeing and hearing may learn to show greater reverence to holy places. Having thus spoken, the clerks returned home, and after their departure, such a number of large black flies swarmed about his face and mouth that neither he nor his attendants could keep them away. Thus did he expire in great torture and agony about the sixth hour of the day. Upon his death, such a great fear seized upon Summerlid and his army that as soon as the ships were floated by the rising tide, the fleet left the port and returned home as quickly as possible. So, the legacy of Godred Croven, who had usurped the previous dynasty of the Isle of Man, runs into its own tumults and a few unpleasant endings, though it does continue. The unified Kingdom of the Isles created by Godred Croven ends as it is divided up following the coup of Summerlid, but Godred's bloodline holds on to power in man all the way through to 1265, another hundred years beyond today's narrative. After that, the Lordship of Man passed to the King of Scotland, who then later lost it to the English, who've kept it ever since. Our saint who comes on the scene in ghostly form during Summerlid's assaults on the district is St. Mackled. According to legend, he was an Irish raider who was converted by St. Patrick in the 5th century. What brought him from Ireland to Man is the subject of various differing legends, uh, though the common thread in these is that he arrives initially as a hermit, seeking to withdraw from the world, but ends up being bishop to the people of the island. One version of this conversion legend is preserved in Murray Life of St. Patrick, the text we heard from for St. Patrick's Day 2018 in episode 52. Uh, so let's hear this legend, as translated by Newport J.D. White. Uh, a couple of quick glosses. Macool uh, is an Irish form of Mackled, and Ivonia is just another name for the Isle of Man. In Patrick's time, there lived in the country of the Ulad folk a certain man named Macool Macugracai. And this man was such a very ungodly, savage tyrant that he was called Cyclops. He was depraved in his thoughts, violent in his words, malicious in his deeds, bitter in spirit, wrathful in disposition, villainous in body, cruel in mind, heathenish in life, monstrous in conscience, inclining to such a depth of ungodliness that one day he acted as follows. There is a mountainous place, rugged and steep, in Droim Maku Ekid, where he daily practiced his tyranny, taking the vilest signs of cruelty and slaying in cruel fashion strangers that passed by. 
Now, one day, when he was sitting at this place, he saw St. Patrick radiating with the clear light of faith and resplendent with a certain wonderful diadem of heavenly glory. He saw him, I say, walking with an unshaken confidence of doctrine on a road agreeable thereto. And he thought to slay him, and said to his followers, Lo, here comes that deceiver and perverter of mankind, whose wont it is to do juggling tricks, that he may deceive and beguile many. Let us go now and test him, and we shall know if that God of whom he makes boast has any power. And so they tested the holy man in the following way. They placed one of their own number, who was in good health, in their midst covered with a blanket, feigning to be sick unto death, that they might test the saint by a trick of this kind, calling the holy man a deceiver, his miracles, jugglery, and his prayers, charms, and incantations. When St. Patrick with his disciples came up, the heathen folk said to him, Lo, one of us is now sick. Come then and chant over him some of the spells of thy religion, if perchance he may be healed. St. Patrick, however, knowing all their deceits and tricks, said boldly and fearlessly, It is no wonder he is sick. And when his companions uncovered the face of the man who was feigning sickness, they perceived that he was already dead. And they, confounded and wondering at such a miracle, said one to another with groans, Truly, this is a man of God. We have done ill in testing him. But St. Patrick, turning to McCool, said, Wherefore didst thou wish to test me? That cruel tyrant answered and said, I am sorry for having done this, and I shall do whatsoever thou biddest me, and I hand myself over now into the power of thy most high God whom thou preachest. And the saint said, Believe then in my God, the Lord Jesus, and confess thy sins, and be baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And he was converted in that hour, and believed in the everlasting God. Moreover, he was baptized, and McCool proceeded to say, I confess to thee, my holy Lord Patrick, that I purpose to slay thee. Give sentence, therefore, what punishment is due for a crime so great and of such a nature. And Patrick said, I cannot judge, but God will judge. Nevertheless, do thou now go forth unarmed to the sea, and depart quickly from this Irish land, taking nothing with thee of thy property, save a cheap and small garment to cover thy body. Eat and drink nothing of the produce of this island, bear a mark of thy sin on thy head, and after thou hast reached the sea, lock thy feet together with an iron fetter, and throw the key of it into the sea. Place thyself in a boat made of a single hide, without either rudder or oars, and be ready to go whithersoever the wind and the waves may lead thee. And whatsoever land divine providence may bear thee to, dwell in it, and there practice obedience to the commandments of God. And McCool said, I shall do as thou hast said, but what shall we do about the dead man? And Patrick said, He will live and rise again without pain. So Patrick raised him up in that same hour, and he lived again in good health. And McCool departed thence as quickly as possible to the sea that is south of the plain of Inish, possessing the unshaken confidence of faith. And he locked himself together on the shore and threw the key into the sea as he had been instructed. And he put to sea in a little boat, and the north wind blew on him and bore him southwards and cast him on an island named Devonia. 
and there he found two men, very famous, resplendent in faith and learning, who were the first to teach the word of God in baptism in Evonia. And the inhabitants of that island were, through their teaching, converted to the Catholic faith. Their names are Conindri and Rumili. Now they, when they beheld a man dressed only in one garment, were amazed and had pity on him, and drew him out of the sea and received him with joy. He then, in a country allotted to him by God, where he found spiritual fathers, practiced both his body and soul in their rule, and passed the whole time of his life with those two holy bishops until he was made their successor in the episcopate. This is Makul, bishop of man and prelate of Ardai Humna. So, that's Murakyu's account. It ends a little prematurely. Uh, I guess he was in a bit of a hurry to get the narrative back to Patrick. He tells us about McCool, a.k.a. Mackold, putting on the fetters and throwing away the key, but he never resolves this particular part of the story. Other versions add that on the day Mackold was to be ordained, having been trained by the two bishops already on the island, a fish was caught, and in its belly they found the key. Thus, Mackold was freed from his fetters at the same time that he committed his life to the priesthood. Finding a key in a fish is not a tale unique to St. Mackold. Uh, virtually the same story is told of St. Edwin, uh, and you'll find lots of other lost items, rings especially, turning up inside fish all over folklore. Anyway, after the saint's death, he continues to be the spiritual protector and patron of the island. The temporal gap between his lifetime and the time of his appearance in this miracle is somewhat similar to St. Cuthbert in our previous episode. Uh, these are both local figures emerging not from recent history, but from the deep and legendary history of their communities. But the passage of time does not seemingly dull the powers or attentiveness of Cuthbert or Mackold. If anything, their legendary character probably enhances the perception of their power. However, Whereas Cuthbert seems to spring proactively into action to oust the tyrannical Bishop Sexelm, Mackold requires a bit of wheedling to spur him on. The appeal the people make to their saint has two premises. One, he has a duty to protect his people, as a feudal lord does. And two, even if he doesn't want to act for their sake, he should do it to protect his name. It's an appeal to ego and feudal status. How can you merit the title of Lord if someone else can come in and abuse your property? That's unmanly. And it's interesting that the author specifies that this plea-slash-challenge is issued by the Manx women, or as the chronicler puts it, the weaker sex, uh, literally sexus vero infirmior. There's a well-established trope in the Icelandic sagas of women in the household goading the male characters to pursue blood feuds by berating them for their unmasculine inaction. The accusatory plea for help of the women of St. Mackold's church seems very similar in tone. Furthermore, the representation of the saint as a lord fulfilling their duties to their vassals, a thing we touched on in the discussion of Mary acting as legal advocate for petitioners a few episodes back, 
This is reinforced in how St. Mackold addresses the would-be pillager Gilcolum. What is there between thee and me, Gilcolum? And what have I injured thee or thine that thou art now about to plunder my place? Gilcolum's offense is personal and individual. St. Mackold isn't speaking on behalf of his people. He's there asserting his own claim to authority and ownership. You could easily imagine this conversation happening between two rival Gothi in a saga. I rather wonder if our chronicler doesn't feel some discomfort of his own with this scenario, uh, which has him putting in the qualifier, they implored the mercy of God through the intercession of St. Mackold. Uh, because otherwise, God seems pretty absent from this story, and it reads a lot more like any old pagan invocation of a local guardian deity. Last episode, I talked about the disconnect between these tales of saintly curses and the rose-colored, he's-got-the-whole-world-in-his-hands style of devotional positivity of the Sunday school experience of my childhood. This story pushes the transgressive element a whole step further. Because, one, Gilcolum is struck down for something he intends to do, but hasn't actually done yet. And two, when he receives the initial chastising affliction, he seeks forgiveness. And remember, forgiveness not for harm he has caused, but for harm he was merely planning on causing. Uh, he seeks forgiveness, and the good Christians bring the saint staff to him on his deathbed in this deliberate tease. And then, like Lucy pulling the football back from Charlie Brown, offer not a blessing, but call on St. Mackle to finish the job and kill Gilcolum now. Like, you could maybe rationalize a justice to Gilcolum's death if he had despoiled the church. Uh, then his death is the necessary punishment in recompense for the harm he did. He loses his life, but is allowed the absolution that saves his repenting soul. But this is some real minority report justice here, with Gilcolum being denied a chance at reform because intending to do a thing is treated as no different from having done it. I'm not sure what Thomas Aquinas would make of that, doctrinally speaking. I suppose the good served by this lack of forgiveness is that it makes a powerful example out of Gilcolum to dissuade other would-be pillagers from targeting the lands of St. Mackled. It announces that they have a powerful protector. It's a bit Avengers, a bit Superman, a bit Doctor Who. By the ancient rites of combat, I forbid you to scavenge here for the rest of time. And when you go back to the stars and tell others of this planet, when you tell them of its riches, its people, its potential, when you talk of the Earth, then make sure that you tell them this. It is defended. Anyway, the fame of becoming a lasting cautionary tale is probably cold comfort to Gilcolum, dying with flies swarming around his mouth. Our riddle for this episode involves a kind of plundering. It is this. If I drive out all the sheep, I can milk the fold. So, what's being described by this metaphor? What milk can only be harvested when the animals have been driven away? A hint for you is that the answer does still refer to an animal product. And with that hint, it's not too hard. So, 
I encourage you to pause and really give this one a shot. If I drive out all the sheep, I can milk the fold. Alright, ready? This is one of the Riddles of Claret, translated from the Latin by Frederick Peachy, and the answer, as given in the text, is Drive out the bees from the hive and get the honey. The sheep are the bees, and the milk is the honey left behind in the comb. And that reminds me of a little fact I learned back in episode 27, which is that in the Middle Ages, while they did have man-made artificial beehives, these weren't the openable, reusable kinds we picture today. They were basically one-time use and had to be busted open like a pinata to get the honey and the honeycomb out, destroying the hive that had been in there. At least, that's what I had read, and what accords with the woven basket-like hives you generally see in manuscript images of beekeeping. Reading a few other sources on medieval beekeeping has raised some doubts for me, though, uh, at least in as much as there are references to harvesting the hive multiple times in a year, and there's advice not to completely destroy it so that it might recover. Uh, it's possible some of this advice applies to harvesting out of uh, more natural hives, like hollowed-out tree trunks, uh, or maybe you could open up the woven hives in a more repairable way. It's a bit fuzzy to me at the moment. Uh, if anyone out there has studied medieval beekeeping or mead production in more detail and cares to weigh in, uh, I'm actually quite interested in getting a clearer answer. As I mentioned last time, after this episode, the show is going on a summer holiday for July and probably a chunk of August, while I'm relocating my own hive to my new home in Canton, Missouri, and job there at Culver Stockton College, getting back to my liberal arts roots. But even through that period, I'll still be reachable for your queries or feedback via Twitter, at MDTPodcast, or by email to patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Um, you can get more information about this and every episode at that website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can also leave comments on episode posts there. You can also support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Just search there for Medieval Death Trip or go to Patreon.com slash MDTPodcast. Later in the year, our patrons will be getting another exclusive audiobook, and I can announce that that will be uh, Einhard's Life of Charlemagne. Uh, if you don't want to miss out, the solution is as simple as a quick visit over to Patreon and as cheap as one US dollar a month. I want to give my patrons a special thank you. Uh, while I've been scrounging for employment over this past year, your contributions, uh, even at what in the scheme of things is a modest sum, have truly made a material difference in my life this past year uh, and have paid some of the necessary bills for making the show that I would have struggled to justify budgeting for without your help. Hopefully, this new job will make my economic margins a little less fraught uh, than they have been going forward, but your support is still very meaningful to me and will remain material to the good of the show uh, and might allow for upgrading my web hosting and maybe even being able to commission some music or special contributions. So, thanks again, and I hope to see even more of you showing up on our Patreon rolls. Okay, have a good July. If your vacations take you to the Isle of Man, remember St. Mackled, and take nothing but pictures and leave nothing but footprints. Uh, unless you're actually buying a souvenir or something, I'm sure St. Mackled appreciates contributions to the local economy. But, you know, just 
watch yourself, and thanks for listening. <laughs>